All right, good morning. Uh, first off, thank you for allowing me to uh, come and bring the word to you this morning. And um, uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you that you have revealed your truth to us. And so, Father, we ask you in this moment, in this hour, that you send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes, to open our ears, and to fill our hearts for love, love for you and love for neighbor. And so, Father, we bring these things to you, and we thank you for the forgiveness of sins, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Hither, come hither, and hearken a while. Odysseus, far-famed king, no sailor has ever passed this way, but has paused to hear us sing. Our song is sweeter than honey. He that can hear it knows what he never had learnt from another and has joy before he goes. We know what the heroes bore at Troy in the ten long years of strife. We know what happens in the world and the secret things of life. Some of you will probably remember these lines from Homer's Odyssey. You will probably remember that they were sung by the sirens, these beautiful creatures that would entice sailors to make their ship wreck. He enticed Odysseus on his way home to make his shipwreck. And Odysseus was so much wanting to hear the sirens, he almost lost his very life and lost the life of his crew. These sirens sing beautiful songs, songs that entice us. And so this morning, what we have before us is a stronger song. It's a stronger song sung by Christ to us about his goodness and love. It is a song that outdoes the song of the sirens, if you will. It is a song that actually battles with the song of the sirens. The song of the sirens is a song of self-reliance. It's a song of self-centeredness. And it's a song that enchants us often. It is namely the song of sin. And unlike Odysseus, who it belongs to the real world of myths, um, we will not escape this song by our cleverness and crews, but through Christ, in Christ alone, we escape it. And so the song, so Psalm 107 highlights, is, highlights this fact for us. It's a wonderful psalm, um, probably my favorite psalm, uh, in the Psalter itself. And it starts out, as we'll see, it starts out with bringing God's eternal, committed, covenantal love toward us, his, in Hebrew, hased. And this is something that is fixed and permanent for his people. Uh, it, some people render it committed love. Often your translations will say steadfast love. But it's meant to convey his permanence to us in his love. 
And so in Psalm 107, what we see is the very goodness of God put forth to us in this song this morning. And that the very outflowing of his love, that he takes creatures like us he, it, and shows us the way. Indeed, uh, Psalm 25, 8 says that good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he shows sinners the way. It's that therefore that should capture us. And so as we go into Psalm 107, this is the consistent picture that we see of, of our God. And so let's break it down for this morning. First off, um, as we read this morning, we encountered the desert wanderers who were redeemed in verses 4 through 9. Then in verses 10, 16, and 17 through 22, we see sinners. Sinners of a different stripe for sure, but they call out to the Lord and he saves them. And then lastly, we see the stranded sailors in verses 23 through 32. Each one of these portraits unravels, it it unfolds in a certain way. And so we see the predicament that we, we and they land themselves in, petition, um, calling out to the Lord, the Lord's pardon, and subsequent praise. And so let us turn to the first portrait, and we'll get going. So, 107, starting in verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. So, interestingly, when you look at the Psalms, and this is perhaps one of the delights of the Psalms, is that you it doesn't give you a whole lot of historical background. It tells you about the character and nature of God and who God is and why people praise him. And so, you know, this could bring together the idea maybe these desert wanderers maybe brings to mind the Israelites um, during the Exodus, wandering in the desert. Or it could bring from mind um, the Babylonian exile, perhaps. The point is, is that we don't know what the psalmist had in mind. But I think as we look at it, we look at uh, dryness and desert is also being, is often used in scripture as a metaphor. Um, the, and it's reflecting something about what is happening in our own lives. And often we find ourselves in a desert wandering, going from experience to experience, job to job. And finding no rest from the heavy-laden burdens and stress of life. This is a common experience to us all where we wake up one morning and we think, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I going to work this morning? Like, why isn't my life more significant? And and, or we we could be stuck in the Black Rock Desert. It's applicable in both situations. Yet, in this mess, we, just as they, can have hope by their petition and the subsequent pardon and praise that they receive. So, in verses 6 through 9, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He led them by the straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing of the soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. I want us to take pause and notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't just give them a self-help book. He doesn't hand them Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life and say, get on with it. Nor does he just throw them some water and say, I wish your travels are go well. Now you have water and you'll be fine. Nor does he even just bring them to the city. And this should actually strike us. This should strike us that this is not merely what he does. Because so often this is what we would do. Um, I can't tell you how many books I've given to people and saying, hey, this book will really help you. But I don't actually take out the time to care for them as God would care for them, as God cares for us. No, God fulfills their deepest desires and gives them good things that satisfies their soul. In other words, he goes beyond whatever they think could think or imagine. At this point, I'm reminded of I'm reminded of Polycarp, the early church father, after the apostles. And when he came, when the executioners came for him, he invited them in for, for lunch. And before he went to his execution, he fed his executioners. And when they asked him to give up the faith, to essentially commit blasphemy against our Lord and not say he is the God of the universe, Polycarp says, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp knew the good food that the Lord gives us, which satisfies our soul. And I pray that would be something that we would know individually that you would pray that God gives you the good food that satisfies your soul. And if you're in Christ this morning, he does give you that good food. Now turning to the next portrait, we meet those who have deconstructed and walked away from the faith in verses 10 through 12. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners of affliction and in irons, for they have rebelled against the words of God and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor and they fell down with none to help. The psalmist never alludes why they rebelled against God or spurned the counsel of the Most High, but they did. And this is not too different from those who walk away from the faith today. Uh, some perceive that as Christians, it's embarrassing. We have intellectual pro- uh, poverty, of, or that 
we have cultural poverty or we're out of step with history, we're out of step with the times, and they walk away. And, and how we know these, the people being portrayed in this particular scene in Psalm 107 are people who knew God is that they knew the counsel, the counsels of God, of the Most High God. And so these are not people unfamiliar with the spiritual life of Israel. They're people, on the contrary, who are very familiar, and they decide to spurn the counsel. These people, you know, in our modern context, would have grown up in the church. They were baptized. They even took communion. And they probably even memorize their verses in Awana. And they have the patches to show it, too. Um, no, but at this point, they knew God's word and they walked away. We all know people like this in our lives. Perhaps we have been these very people. Yet, and, and, and I don't mean to belabor this point um, because it's kind of a a Christian trope sometimes, and it can be used wrongly, but there is a very real truth to this, is that people walk away. Um, I saw people I went to university with walk away from Christ because of sexual sin. And like I said, it's kind of a trope, but it's true. Um, and, the, and so there's all sorts of reasons they walk away, but they could walk away for intellectual reasons, just like I said. However, in their rebellion... They only found death and affliction, and they were conscious and uh, conscious and sorrow of this in their prison. Yet, again, we can be comforted by their petition and subsequent pardon and praise in verses 13 through 16. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. We should take hope in this because we often lose we, we, often lose, uh, well, we often lose hope for those who have fell away. Yet they're not totally gone. And if you have gone through a particular hard time, or maybe you are going through a hard time, and you feel like you're falling away, start where you began. Start where you began by calling out to the Lord. And this is, again, I'm reminded of something else from the early church. The early church commonly prayed under the, under the persecution that they faced, come back, Lord, bring them back. And that should be our prayer for everyone, every one of us who has someone in our lives who has walked away, that they would come back and they would start where they began by calling out to the Lord in their affliction. affliction. And so let us now turn to a very different type of unbeliever or sinner. This is in verses 17 and 18. And these, these are actually people that don't appear to be characterized by knowing the words of God. In 17 and 18, some were fools through their own sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction and loathed any kind of food. 
and they drew near to the gates of death. It's good at this point to remind us of probably something that we're aware of. Fools in the scriptural sense is not due to any intellectual deficiency. It is characterized by not living wisely. And actually, I could find no better definition than actually what I found in Delitzsch, a German scholar from the 1800s. He put it excellently. He said, a fool is someone who, who insanely lives for only the, only the passing hour and ruins health, calling, family, and in short, himself and everything that belongs to him. This sounds like some of my college roommates. Um, and I'm sure that we know plenty of people like that. And you say, what are you doing? What are you doing? But they can't see it. They're blinded. They're blinded by their own sin. Yet, again, there is hope. As we see the, their petition and subsequent pardon and praise. Starting in verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. They're not only delivered from their affliction, but they were healed and saved from their destruction. And this is, this is amazing because I've seen this over and over again in my own life, my own personal life, but I've seen it with other people. I was just in uh, England back in May, and I had a wonderful time worshiping with the saints in England and met a wonderful Scottish woman. And she, 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 I asked her, how, how long have you been going to Emmanuel Anglican? And she says, she leans over and says, two years, and I just got saved. And I said, well, tell me more. I want to know more about this. She says, well, it started out, and I lived this horrible life, and I did... I did these horrible things, and she goes into these details, and it was pretty bad. And, and she says, but then one day I read the Bible, I read Matthew, and I got to the Sermon on the Mount, and I wanted to throw it across the room. And then she says, but then I picked it up again. And the next morning I read it, and she says, I believed. And she says her whole life turned around. She still obviously deals with some of the stuff that she did, but the Lord not only takes us out of our affliction, which she was in affliction, but when we call out to him, he actually heals us. He changes us. No doubt we carry scars from our previous sins, both as what we committed as believers and unbelievers, but he heals us to a substantial amount, which points to the ultimate healing which I'll get into a bit later. And at this point, I, am, I just am related to, I, I'm reminded of Augustine. 
Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God because he has made us for himself. This is where our peace comes from, and this is where the peace from those who were in prison or sick, that, that they called out to God and he saved them. Finally, let's turn to our, our, our last portrait in verses 23 and 27 and through 27. We are met with God's care for the entirety of our being, starting in verse 23. Some of us went down to the sea in ships and doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Often is the case in the Bible it, that the Bible does not fit our tidy categories. That's actually the more I grow in the word, the more I come to know God, God does not fit our tidy categories often. And we're very uncomfortable with that. But what we are, what we see here, and I don't know where this has actually precisely come in, but we see that God is rescuing the sailors both physically and spiritually. It is a physical, spiritual, and spiritual deliverance. And, um, and they cry out to him for physical deliverance from the waves of the sea. And this is actually a fascinating one because the Israelites are not known to be seafaring people um, in their history. And so we have reason to believe that these are are probably Philistines or some sort of nation around them calling out to Yahweh. And so, like many of us, we face these same troubles that these sailors face. Uh, we, we face ailment and death. We face loss and grief. And in those moments, we can call out to the Lord. And we can take take hope in their petition, subsequent pardon, and praise. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. For his wondrous works to the children of man, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So this can remind us of the, of the sailors in Jonah who cried out to the Lord, the pagan sailors, mind you, who cried out to the Lord and he made the storm hush. They tried and tried to get back to the dry land by themselves but were unable to do so, and their only deliverance came from calling out to the Lord. That is our only hope, is calling out to the Lord. And he delivered them both spiritually, and if you go back and read Jonah, they offer sacrifices, they vow vows to the God of Israel. So spiritually and physically, he delivers them out of the danger that they were in. So 
Now that we're kind of coming to end and closing in, there's a few things I want to cover. It's tempting to take these four portraits as individual portraits, but we should actually take them together. They're, they encompass, they're four portraits of the whole human experience, our human experience, and our need to call out to the Lord and to be delivered. And there is little doubt that we have found our play, ourselves in one of these categories throughout the entirety of our life. And no doubt we will find ourselves in these categories again at some point in the future. And I would beg of you to start to go back to where you started with Christ by calling out to him. And so what can we glean from these these portraits? Well, one, our God who delivers also lavishes us in love regardless of our predicament and place. We saw the the, the desert wanderers. We saw the people who knew the word of God, who were a part of the spiritual community of Israel. We saw the people who didn't know the word of God, and we saw the sailors. And regardless of our background, our predicament, he will deliver us. And this is, I, I want to point this out because the, somehow we get this weird idea that somehow the God of the Old Testament is not like the God of the New Testament. And we see far that's not right. And in this psalm, hopefully that gives you some proof that the God of the Old Testament is not just wrathful and the God of the new one is loving. No, God, it's the same God and he's been loving throughout all time. The other thing this helps us correct, the psalm helps us correct, is that when we think of the Old Testament, we usually think of the Pharisees. We think that um, as we encounter them in the New Testament, somehow they represented the old. But Jesus made it very clear that the Pharisees, with their unhelpful traditions, were actually an Old Testament heresy. And what we see here is who God has always been to his people. Then we see that God cares for his creatures both physically and spiritually. He brings us through life's troubles. We come to him. We can cast our burdens upon him, just as Psalm 55 and 1 Peter 5 say. We can cast our burdens upon him. And it's not solely a spiritual deliverance. It can also be physical Our God should be praised for kindness. So we saw throughout all the songs, all the portraits, that he was praised. They praised God. And you ask, why do they put such an emphasis on that? Probably because we forget, and we forget often, God's kindness toward us. And so, so we're reminded in the Psalms of God's kindness and for why we should be praising And then lastly, I think one of the things that's very important is that God saves people in the Old Testament the same way he does in the New. That's by calling out on the name of the Lord. St. Paul knew this very clearly when he says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is precisely what we find in Psalm 107. So, 
this opens up one big question. How should we expect our deliverance when we cry out to him? So, as I mentioned before, the psalmist sees a holistic salvation for us. And this, at times, can actually be very difficult to work through. Because you ask, why am I suffering? I'm calling out to you, Lord, and you don't hear me. Um, I was reading, what was it? I believe it was Psalm 13 this morning. And you see the Psalms are replete with this. That you ask for deliverance and God doesn't deliver. At least in the way that you would want. And, And so I think that there's a few things that would be helpful to address this. First, um goes to expectations. When we call out to the Lord, I think sometimes we expect a very flashy miracle to come in. And um, sometimes that deliverance is not the one that we get, oftentimes, is not the one that we get. And that does not mean that he can't save, can't deliver us from our distress with a miracle. But more often, as we see in the books of Esther and Ruth, He works through his kind providence. He works through us talking with him, working through his word by friends coming into our life. In other words, he he delivers us through ordinary means. And I, I don't want to rule out that he can do a miracle. We should pray for healing. We should pray for physical deliverance, but that may not always come. And it might be something that only happens once in a lifetime, if at all. But this raises a deeper question. When when we don't feel feel like he is he's delivering us, we pray and pray and nothing comes. And we ask, what should we do with the horrors of this world? Because after all, even if he delivers us from trial, from pain, even if he heals us to a great extent of our scars, we are still left with the memory of those scars. We're still left with the pain. I don't know if any of you have ever read Job and ever thought that, in the sense that, have ever wondered if Job still mourned the sons and daughters he lost. He was, he was given new sons and daughters, and we tend to read that, and, oh, that's great. But anybody that's a parent in this room knows that every precious child you have is precious. And even if God healed Job to a substantial amount, Job is still faced with the memories of the loss of his own children. And I can think of some, something that happened actually almost a year ago today, Last summer, a pastor I know was killed by his wife because she thought he was an intruder. He's coming home at an odd hour of the day. They don't live in a very good neighborhood. She grabbed the gun and shot through the door and killed him. And so she calls 911 to report it and then goes outside to find her husband bleeding out and dying. What do you do with that? And this is where 
the deliverance is probably the most profound. It's profound because what Christ offers us by calling out to him is not just a better life, not just better friends, not even just sweet fellowship. It's not even just knowing him, but he promises us in the hope of the resurrection that in calling out to him that we will be raised with him to world without end. And our tears will be wiped away. Our sorrows will be healed. And we will, we will forget everything that has caused us pain. And so I hope this, this uh, reminds you that God doesn't just show us blessing in this current hour, this current moment, in this life only, but we are those who have hope by calling on his name for the future blessing of the resurrection and to be in his presence forever. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you would even send your son for us, that you would deliver us by merely calling upon your name. We pray that the love, your love, would overflow in our hearts, that we may make you known to our neighbors, make you known to our friends, and make you known to the world. Lord, we rejoice in who you are, in your goodness for teaching us the way, that your very goodness demands that you teach sinners the way. And so, Father, help us to praise you throughout this next week. Help us to meditate on these things and help us to hold on as we progress through this life that we may make it home to you. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.